You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us together on this Lord's Day. And Lord, thank you for your word and the way in which it continues to shape and frame us. And I pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds to it even now. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, hey, everyone. Come on in. Uh, I, uh, I asked Gil to title this Old Testament Advent Promises, which, which means that I can kind of do whatever, whatever. I wanted to keep it real loose. Um, so it's two, two weeks together. And, and if it's okay with you all, I, I'd like to dive a little bit more deeply into Isaiah um, with us this morning to, to think out loud a bit about the ways, and, and particularly um, from you know some of the readings that we heard this morning, um, the way in which Isaiah in particular um, functions as, as a text that anticipates, um, or at least frames for us a certain kind of anticipation, and I would say an emotional and effective context for the season of Advent and Christmas. So, um, uh, I, and I, I get it. I mean, the prophets can be hard going. Um, most of you are familiar with uh, St. Augustine's famous story that I probably repeat more often than I should, but where St. Augustine um, said that when he was recently converted to the Lord, preparing for his baptism, um, that uh, you know Ambrose, his bishop, encouraged him to go and to read Isaiah in preparation for his baptism. And he said, I started to read Isaiah, and I didn't understand one word that was there. Um, so, so where did he go? He went to the place that we all go, right, when we have struggle. He went to the Psalms. Um, so, I mean, the prophets, the prophets are a challenge. They yield their fruit slowly over a long amount of time. Um, but Isaiah, you know, especially within the early church, was often referred to as the fifth gospel. Um, so it had a very special role that, in, in um, the formation of the early church. And other than the book of Psalms, I think the book of Isaiah is the most quoted book in all of the, all of the New Testament. So it, it's a very important book. And, and I would say the fact that Isaiah is the first book in the, in the prophets also says something about the importance and singularity of its role in such a way as actually to frame how we read all of the prophets. So I think Isaiah creates for us or gives us a set of language, some grammar, some eyes to see and to anticipate what we're going to encounter when we move from Isaiah to Jeremiah and then Ezekiel and then the minor prophets as well. So Isaiah plays a really important role. I wanted to look at a couple of places that I consider to be um, seems is not the right term, but um, um, some, some kind of bookends that happen within the book itself that lead us down a really dark alley and then rather quickly turn us toward the light again. And Isaiah can do that in such a way that can at times maybe feel feel like it leaves you with a sense of whiplash, right? Because you're having... Um, a, a lot of, for lack of a better term, a lot of judgment texts that are coming. And you can't read the prophets without a sense of judgment that's attendant to them. Um, but these judgment texts often yield um, themselves or open themselves up to other texts uh, as well. So I wanted to look at a couple with you this morning. The first one being, an, and, I, and I don't know if you have Bibles on your phones or whatever, but Isaiah chapter 1 as it leads into Isaiah chapter 2, because Isaiah chapter 2 
is very much related to Isaiah chapter 11 that we heard um, read this morning. So Isaiah the prophet begins with really hard news. I mean, this is, this is again, it's the, the prophets do not, you know, that, that famous line by Emily Dickinson, tell the truth, but tell it slant. The prophets don't do that. The prophets are very direct. They, they don't speak with any, um, they, they, they don't clear their throats a lot. They speak rather directly. So listen to the first verse of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 2. Um, Isaiah does not bury the lead for you journalist people out there. I mean, he's going to tell you right out of the gate what's going on. And here it is. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. I, I raised some children and I brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. And that term there, rebellion, is the operative term of the book in its entirety. Just, just, well, you don't, if you don't have Bibles, just for fun, if you flip all the way to the end of Isaiah, the last chapter, and it covers a lot of ground, um, and a lot of time as well. If you get to Isaiah 66, if I can get to it. The last verse is this, and uh, gosh, this, this is hard hard to hear, but here, here you go. I, di- I didn't choose for this to be in there, but it is. Um, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of those who have, and here's the word again, rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So there are, it's, it's, it's a technical term, it is an, an inclusio. And what you have here are bookends beginning and end that begin with the reality of Israel's rebellion and then end as well with an understanding of Israel as rebellious. And it's as if when you're reading the book of Isaiah, the credits of the movie start to scroll, you know, a little too fast. Like, is there a resolution to this? But the resolution of Isaiah is to leave before you two paths. Now, are you going to go down the paths of, of, of the rebellious, or are you going to go down the path of those who align themselves with the Lord and His promises? And there's not, I mean, I'm not quite sure how to say this, there's not middle ground. It's not, uh, there's, there's not a soft middle or, or a happy kind of moderate position. It's either complete loyalty to the Lord Himself or, or the path of rebellion. Those, those are the options that are before you. So the first chapter is hard, right? I mean, it's like calling on all the earth to... To bring um, a charge against Israel, they're they're rebellious against me. I love this verse here, Isaiah one three. Ox know their master, donkeys know how to get to their master's cribs, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Now let's talk about that for a second as well, because it'll lead into what we're doing in Isaiah two and on Isaiah and Isaiah eleven. I don't. I think you all might have to sit in the tree stump over there. Uh, <laughs> Oh, good. Okay, there you are. Um, hey, Mark, where is Isaiah drawing his... He says he speaks, you know, the Lord has spoken. Where is, is this a... Great question. Yeah, I love. And by the way, fire these. I love. Fire it out. I, I prefer that. Isaiah uh, chapter 1, verse 1 describes the whole of Isaiah as, as, um, here's the one right here, as the chatzon of the Lord. As the vision of the Lord, and this this term chatzah to see, um, it's a it's a strange term that I think we tend to associate with some kind of divinization, not divin- divination, to, to see um, something clairvoyant. 
But the interesting thing about Isaiah as a whole is the whole of the book can't be described as something clairvoyant per se. I mean, you've got three chapters, Isaiah 36, uh, with four chapters, 36 to 39, um, that are a historical report. It's, it's, so in other words, that's not a, that's not a vision per se. So I think the overall term that we have here would be revelation. So it's something that's revealed. And you're raising the question about the mechanics of the revelation. Like how, how did it happen? And, and this is, this is the challenge, right? So we, we read this as the Bible. But when you think about this from the eighth century perspective, or we can move to Jeremiah, you can see what a challenge this is because the Bible's not real quick in most places to let you know any of the mechanisms of how this revelation actually occurs. Is it, I mean, we know that the Lord does not dispense with the personalities of the, of the authors or the prophets or the poets of the Bible. So he doesn't, Jeremiah sounds different than Isaiah. David is different than Solomon. So it, they don't dispense with their personalities. They're not abstracted from that. But how they actually receive this, I mean, the term is revelation, but the mechanics is, is kind of left um, um, undefined often. I mean, can I make it even more problematized? Abraham has the Lord tell him to go and sacrifice his son in Genesis 22. And that's a great example where, well, what, were the, what, what was the mechanism of that word? I mean, did he have a dream? Never says. Did he hear an audible voice? No. Was, or at least we don't know. It doesn't say that. Was something maybe arising within his heart? Now, I don't like to read too much into these texts. I want to kind of respect them for what they are. But you can imagine telling Sarah, you know, like, How, how's that conversation go? Um, you know, like, well, you know, may, may, maybe your burrito was bad last night. You know, I mean, I, I, so, um, so the, it, and if we can move it, if we can move it to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, the stakes are really high, right? Because, and you don't often see this in the Bible, you have to kind of read hard after these things, but there were false prophets in the land. Um, and it's not like the false prophets walked around with a hat that said, I'm a false prophet. You know, these were prophets that were assigned or linked to various political or religious figures. Everyone had their prophet. And prophets, and this Mike is really big on this, prophets tended to be for hire. Micah gets really chafed about this in, in Micah chapter 3, where he says, what do the prophets do? They say, listen, if you give me something to eat, I'll give you a message of peace. If you won't pay me off, then I'm going to give you a message of war. Right? So you've got this sense where the prophets can be bought. And in Jeremiah, the stakes are life and death. Right? Because here you have someone like Hananiah, who's a false prophet, and what does Hananiah say? He says to King Zedekiah, hey, don't listen to this Jeremiah guy. The Babylonians are not going to come and invade us. Um, we're going to be safe. We've read some Zion Psalms. Nothing's going to occur to us. It's only going to be a little blip on the screen. And what does Jeremiah say? Don't listen to Hananiah. It's 70 years that we're going to be suffering under the exile that's going to occur because of the, of the Babylonians coming. So the question is, if you put yourself... Now, we've got the Bible, but you put yourself in the 8th or 6th century world, like, well, who, who's right? Like, wh where does one place their confidence in all of this? Now, here's a fun little thing, right? In Jeremiah, where it says, Hananiah said all this, and Jeremiah leaned against him. Last verse, a classic, unstated, biblical verse. And Hananiah died that day. <laughs> ne next verse, da, da, da. So that's one way, I guess, you know that it didn't quite work out. Um, but the mechanisms of how they received these words, we're not really sure. There's some kind of seeing. 
There's some kind of encounter. There's some, they're, they're arrested by something external to themselves. In other words, their prophecies are not an act of self-discovery. The word of the Lord, it says regularly in the prophets, comes to them. So there's an agency of the word that comes to them. But, but the how and the why and, and why this moment and not, there's just a lot that we don't know. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a fascinating religious historical phenomenon that the Bible doesn't always you know, uh, you know, clarify for us. Now, when you get to kind of goofy books, I shouldn't say goofy, but wild books like Daniel, I mean, Daniel's there is having visions. I mean, he's seeing, he's seeing things. So it's not beyond the pale to say that they saw things, um, but you don't want to reduce the prophets to that. They're, they're often um, foretellers and foretellers. They're, they're, they're preachers. They're announcing something in the moment. Um, so sorting through all that can be, can be um, a challenge. Yeah. Anyway, so you have here um, in Isaiah 1 that he sees the vision of the Lord. It's a, it's a call and a recognition of rebellion. And all of this is, is very bad news. I mean, you have the Israelites described in chapter 1 of Isaiah as Sodom and Gomorrah. That, I mean, those are fighting terms, right, in the ancient world. Um, I mean, and, and the prophet Ezekiel does this as well. Sodom and Gomorrah look at your covenant infidelity and they blush with what they see. That's the kind of imagery that you have here. Um, so all of this sets up for you this scene of judgment. Um, and then you have verse 31, right? And or verse 30, for you shall be like an oak whose leaf... Um, uh, uh, or look at verse 29. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. Now, this is a this is another one of those really interesting Isaianic play on words. Um, the oak tree in the book of Isaiah, um, or trees in general, are negative images. Um, matter of fact, I I, uh, I was asked by um, Christ Fellowship Church in town here, church over on Green Springs, um, to to come and, and preach a one a one off sermon on Isaiah, like cover the whole sermon, a whole book of Isaiah in one sermon. Like okay, um, and and uh, and it was kind of it was fun because the the and there's multiple ways to skin that cat, um, but the way in which we went after the cat that morning was to look at the whole of the book of Isaiah through the lens of the tree imagery, raising the question, what kind of tree are you? Isaiah wants to ask you, what kind of tree are you? Because the tree imagery that's used in the book of Isaiah is for the most part negative in its connotation. Trees in the book of Isaiah are doing two things. Number one, they attest from a kind of metaphoric standpoint to Israel's arrogance, right? So if you look at Isaiah chapter 2, verse... At 17, the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Um, I'll, I'll get back to this again, but Isaiah chapter 10, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bowels with, with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. I mean, so I mean, the, the image that you have here is of the Lord in the forest carrying about his axe. Um, and, and why is he bringing his axe to the trees? For two reasons. Number one, the tree attests to Israel's arrogance and pride. Um, and and this, this is a fascinating feature, I think, of the book of Isaiah as a whole. Only the Lord is raised and exalted. Think Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, what? High and lifted up. 
And the Lord alone is the one who is exalted. Whenever humanity seeks to exalt themselves, um, this is this is a kind of invitation for the Lord to bring in um, the the might of His humbling power. I uh, uh, I, I mentioned this to, to Don. Several, I don't know if you remember this song, but se- several years ago, I said, you know, one of one of one of my kids um, who will go unnamed has a little bit of a um, a, a, a bragometer at times, you know, not 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 ashamed to let you know of his achievements. And I was like, man, and I'll never forget Don said, oh, I'll just let it go. He said, life will work that out of him. <laughs> no, <laughs> no that's, great, that's great, right? Um, because we know that, right? We know that the ways in which I mean, the, the, those who exalt themselves will be made low. I mean, we know this as a general concept, and I think we know it probably within the contours of our own stories and lives. So we, we get this. But but the tree serves for an image of of pride and arrogance. But it does another thing as well. It also serves in an indirect way as a description of Israel's idolatry. Um, the green, uh, you will be ashamed of every oak tree. Uh, um, Hosea talks about the shame that comes with going out into the orchards together. You're like, well, what is that? And since we're all adults in here, I'll tell you tell you what it is, right? Um, this this was uh, part of the cultic mythology of Canaanite religion that um, Ale or Baal or Baal would go to sleep every winter. And then he would wake up again, hopefully in the spring. He was the storm god. He would wake up in the spring and bring with him the rains so that you could have a harvest when harvest time came later in the fall. So that, that was the, the whole sort of religious cycle of, of, um, of Baal, right? The storm god. Well, how did you wake up Baal? I mean, think about the story of, of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Elijah on Mount Carmel is actually pressing on that myth of the Canaanite religion when he says to them, well, maybe he's still sleeping. I always thought that Elijah was just being snarky, and I think he was being a little snarky, but he was also kind of making fun of their, their religious worldview. Maybe Baal's still sleeping. Louder. So what do they do? They start cutting themselves, and, and why would they do that? Well, here's the green tree stuff. It was bodily fluids. It was blood that would go into the ground that might wake up Baal or some kind of sort of, I mean, I'll just say a sexual orgy with your neighbors out in the, out in the orange groves or the, you know, to, that would wake up Baal. So I, I've teased my students at Beeson before. If you were in 8th century Israel or Judah and your neighbors asked you to go on a picnic, you know, to the, to the apple orchard, no is the answer. Right? You just, just don't do that. Um, so you have these these pictures here, these images of the tree, and the tree now is being coming uh, in verse chapter thirty and thirty one, um, tender, a work of a spark. Um, he's going to cut them down like a garden without water. So chapter one leaves you with little doubt about the scene on the ground. Israel is caught up in her arrogance and her idolatry, and the tree is the image that God uses to describe her arrogance and her idolatry, and she lacks. Knowledge. This is interesting, isn't it? Um, they do not know their master. Um, Hosea says that you perish for lack of knowledge. And this is, again, a classic example of where Reformation thought helps us understand what the, these prophets are talking about here. It's not knowledge simply in terms of intellectual understanding. I, I, I know about something. It's also a knowledge that's linked into the confidence and the hope of what it is that you know. But we would call that good old-fashioned faith. So that faith and knowledge are kind of flip sides of the same coin. In fact, faith, knowledge, and hope 
form a triad within the Bible in, 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 as a whole. So here you have um, uh, the, the prophet saying they, they die for lack of knowledge. Isn't it interesting that the last phrase in Isaiah 11 is, and the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters covers the sea. Um, and I didn't even talk about this today, but I think Isaiah 11 is so rich because all of that descriptive imagery you have of wolves and lambs and bears and lions, the last phrase says, and this is a causal link, all of that happens because the knowledge of the Lord is like the waters that covers the sea. So there's something salvific. There's a saving entity, not just for us, but think about this, for the whole of creation that comes into view and what God has done and the knowledge of God as revealed in His Son is that which is actually the the magical key that unlocks the kind of unfolding of the universe in accord with what it was intended to be absent sin and violence and, and death. So back to Isaiah chapter 1. Here you have this seam, right, of death. We think of Isaiah 1 as Good Friday. But then Good Friday opens up to Isaiah chapter 2. So you go from judgment into, boy, now something very different. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. Here you have that Saul word again to see. Concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And here's the promise. It shall come to pass in the latter days. And that that is an operative term. I mean, I've, I've said this before, so it's probably becoming cliche-ish. If, if, if the prophets sold t-shirts, they would sell two t-shirts. One would say the Hebrew term shuv which means return or repent. The other t-shirt would say something like the Achara Yomim, right? The latter days. Now, so if they were selling t-shirts, it would be the repent or in the latter days because now um, the prophet moves from the reality of their situation on the ground to a portrait of Zion in the future that attests to something beyond their current moment. This is where the hope comes into play. And here you have, I, I love this, this is one of my favorite texts in the prophets. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountain. Now that's fascinating, right? Um, how many of you have done this sort of Israel trip before? Um, Mount Zion, I mean, you know, compared to Utah and the Rockies, we're not, we're not talking about anything very impressive here. Mount Hermon to the north, Mount Gerizim, oh, kind of impressive things. Um, the, around the area of Tiberias with Galilee, you can have, I, mean, I was shocked by this, you can have areas in Galilee that look like the highlands of Scotland. You know, so you, you have these sort of pretty, but, but Zion, Mount, the mountain of, of Jerusalem, right there between the Kidron Valley and, and, and the Hinnom Valley, that's, I mean, we're not, we're not talking here about um, an impressive mountain. It's not even, it's kind of like Red Mountain, I guess, in a way. Although, English Village, okay, yeah. That would be in our new translation, the new, the new Birmingham translation. Um, so the mountain of the Lord, Zion, shall be established as the highest mountain, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. And here's the, here's the promise, and all the nations are going to flow to it. And many peoples are going to say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And this, this touches me because I, I, I think of, you know, my own vocation. I think this is beautiful, right? Why, why are they going to, the, to Mount Zion? So that they can be taught the ways of the Lord from God Himself. So, so think about how all this sort of begins to link together. Back in Isaiah chapter 1, they're dying for lack of knowledge. They, they don't even know who I am anymore. Isaiah 11 gives a picture as well, a future portrait of, of the knowledge of the Lord covering the earth like the waters cover the sea. And here you have in Isaiah 2, all these things tipping and tucking into one another, the nation streaming to Mount Zion. For what reason? Because we've heard that your God teaches there. 
And we want to hear what he has to say. We want the revelation of the Lord to order and guide us. And what happens when God teaches them? Well, verse 4, he's going to judge between the nations. He's going to decide disputes for many peoples. And, and here's a great Martin Luther King Jr. moment. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against the nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. I don't know if you're picking up this theme in the prophets, but it's here in Isaiah, it's in Jeremiah, it's in Ezekiel, it's in Micah. I mean, it's all throughout the prophets. But this promise of the future day is a promise of a future day that's absent violence. Um, instruments of war are now agricultural tools. You know, I mean, I know it's like spears become pruning hooks. Um, AR-15s become, I don't know, cattle prods or something like that. Now, but but it's, it's this sort of remarkable thing, and, and, and it's linked to memory and knowledge. In other words, war and the terror of war and the fear that comes with war is a faint memory that we don't re- really... It's like, I remember something about that. You know, it's like, I, I remember something about warfare, but can't quite bring it to mind what that's like anymore. That's, that's the idyllic picture they have of the future kingdom. So then when you move from there to the text that I wanted to really kind of look at with you, then when you get to Isaiah chapter 10 which leads into the text that we heard read this morning. Verse 33, we have another one of these themes, right? So what happens in Isaiah 1 and 2? Judgment or Good Friday that leads into Isaiah 2, which is Easter Sunday. And you have this back and forth going all through the book of Isaiah. Here's another one. Isaiah chapter 10 ends with another Good Friday text. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great will be brought down. Thickets of the forest will be cut down with an axe. Even Lebanon will fall by the power of the majestic one. Lebanon there standing in, re- in relation to the trees that Lebanon has. Right? That's, that's the image that's being drawn from here. And then what happens on the flip side of this? Well, we move from Good Friday again to Easter morning, from Advent to Christmas. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Isn't that, this is so wild, right? So you've got this tree that's lopped down and then some sprigs be able to start to come from outside of this tree. Um, Isaiah chapter 6, a few uh, chapters earlier, you have the great vision of Isaiah the prophet and you know, Isaiah sees the Lord and he gets his lips purified and he says to the Lord, I'll go for you, I'll be your spokesperson. And then the Lord says, okay, good, go and tell them um, that everything that they know about my saving grace is going to be withdrawn and I'm coming to them as a judge. And Isaiah says very understandably, well, how long do I have to do that? And his answer was, until everything's destroyed except for about a tenth of the city. Uh, it's, it's going to be very, very bad. And then how does Isaiah 6 end? Three really small words in Hebrew. Holy seed is its stump or new growth. So even there in Isaiah 6, out of the midst of the devastation, there's new life that begins to emerge. Here in Isaiah chapter 11, there's new life that begins to emerge. And what's the new life that's emerging? It's something from the root of the stump of Jesse. Now, this to me is an interesting feature that we find here and other places as well, like Micah 5, for example. I mean, what happens is it's not... It's an appeal back to the days of Jesse. So you hear Jesse and you think what? David, right? So Jesse's all wrapped up with the the Davidic promises that you read about in the book of Samuel and Kings. So we get the David thing. But it's interesting, isn't it, that it goes back to the source of the Davidic promises, not 
to the immediate king who's on the throne right now, right? Because we know we have a succession of Davidic kings that are on the throne. Think about Isaiah. Isaiah meets several of them. You have Uzziah, and then his son Ahaz, and then Hezekiah. I mean, you've got several kings that are all from the line of David that could be appealed to. But he doesn't say here a a, a root from the stem of uh, Hezekiah. Or, or Ahaz, or the immediate Davidic king. It goes back to the beginning. Um, think about Micah 5 2. That was read this morning too, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, o Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are least among the tribes, from you shall come to me one who, and then the, it goes on. Bethlehem, not, not Jerusalem. I mean, think about it. Jerusalem at that point in time is the epicenter of the Davidic monarchy. And the Davidic monarchy is strong and established. You would think, O Jerusalem, from you shall come forth for me, the, but it's not Jerusalem. It's back to Bethlehem. It's back to uh, Jesse. It's back to early roots. I mean, this is why Christians have read Isaiah 11 and Micah 5 as ultimately referring to Jesus because the language itself demands that something something new is happening here. It's not just the, the natural progression of kingly rites that pass on from father to son to father to son and on and on. There's something that's effervescent and new in this moment right here. So here comes some, someone from the, the seed of Jesse. And how do we identify this, this figure? It's powerful. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Wisdom and understanding. Counsel. Might. Notice these terms again. Knowledge. Fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Isn't it interesting that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in the book of Proverbs? I mean, you can draw from all the wisdom, all, I tell tell my kids, draw from all the borrowed capital, be a sponge in this world of all the wisdom that you can acquire. I mean, if you be, be teachable in every moment that you can, because you always have something to learn, and we don't even know what we don't know, right? So be out there and be teachable. But wisdom in the Bible is framed through the lens of the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord that's the operative lens by which we engage all the wisdom of this world, not vice versa. The wisdom of this world will not lead you to the fear of the Lord. But the fear of the Lord is the lens by which we engage wisdom. And here we have this new promised individual, this messianic figure coming from the root of Jesse who operates in the fear of the Lord fully and completely. And operating in the fear of the Lord, he demonstrates wisdom and knowledge and power and might and justice and equality in our world. I, th- I think this is, this is so interesting to me because, and again, the prophets do this, they're painting for us a portrait of a future day, and I don't want this to get politically charged, but where your government is working for you. I mean, that, that's what it is. It's a future moment where you're not, you, you trust those that are in leadership and organizing the body politic of the world. And they're doing so in such a way with, with no self-interest, no self-promotion, but fully for the welfare of the people and their neighbors. And that's how the prophets present this again. Why? Well, because we know, right? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We have all these little cliches that we toss around. And we know that they're true because we know that our, our political class and our leadership class, they're sinners and we are too. Right, So we, we, don't, we don't get out of jail free either on this. We yearn for a day when the body politic, when civilization is organized in such a way that it doesn't operate according to fear, 
but absolute trust in our leaders. And this is the promise that you have here of the ultimate messianic age. The Messiah, the Lord, will reign with complete equitable justice for the world. It will be a rightly ordered society. So think about the way in which this is all set up here. When this new one comes and establishes his kingdom, we will be rightly ordered vertically in our relationship to God. That, there will, that we will know the Lord like the waters cover the seas. We'll not be marred or marked by sin in our relationship to Him. There'll be no fear. There'll be no anxiety. We will be completely lost in the beauty and the power and the glory of the grace of the One who's leading us um, as the One who fears the Lord Himself. That Jesus, right? So we get that. But there's also this incredible horizontal implication that has. So that we're now also rightly ordered politically, um, the way in which we order ourselves in the body politic, and with the animal kingdom. That's what, will come, that's what comes next. Now, I'm going to tell you, I, I, I've read um, too many commentaries in my life. Don't buy them. I'm joking. <laughs> you can buy them. Um, I was reading one of my favorite commentators on, on Isaiah. Um, he was Regis Professor Oxford for years. He just retired. Um, if he writes it, I read it. I and mean, I just think he's one of these sort of first-rate, what I would call, exegetical minds. Um, but he's also what I would call, um, um, well, this is, not, this is being recorded, um, in, interpretively boring. Um, and, and what I mean by that is there, there's a kind of Bible scholar um, who's, who's uh, um, overly historicist in the way in which they read text, and so they're going to leave... A, a chapter like Isaiah 11 back in the ancient Near Eastern world and try to provide a natural explanation for it. And this is the natural explanation that a lot of commentators will provide for this crazy wolf and lamb and bear and gazelles and all this stuff that you have here. They're going to say, well, you can find some Sumerian texts and Mesopotamian texts where whenever they would anoint a new king, they would just use this kind of hyperbolic language. I mean, and, and here you go, right? Um, and, and he lists some of them out. And, and, and there, there's no reason for me to say that that's not true. Um, but I think I also want to say, but that's just not enough. And, and it loses a sense of, of the wonder of a text like this when it's just dismissed through, through means of historical comparative analogy. Um, so I think there are historical You know who's great on this, by the way? I, I, I'm changing my tune. Um, C.S. Lewis. And it's so funny, like I've never been a Lewis person. I think it's just been maybe part of my evangelically rebellious side. I don't know, because uh, everyone loves C.S. Lewis. By the way, I just read Reflections on the Psalms with a class at Beeson, C.S. Lewis's. Um, he's, he's, that man's provocative, too. I mean, he's, uh, I mean I'll leave that to the side. But ne nevertheless, um, what, what's, what was, what's Lewis's point? L Lewis's point would be the reason why you go to something like the Sumerian annals and find something similar to this here in Isaiah 11. Or you go to the Enuma Elish or the Epic of Gilgamesh and you can read flood accounts or creation accounts that are mythic. The reason why all that happens into our, in our world and in our histories is because the mythic and the magical is built within the very fabric of the universe. All these things witness to something that they don't quite get right. In other words, he, we would, he said it would be more problematic for us not to have all that fantastical stuff out there. 
And, and that's why you have people like J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, writing books about wizards and hobbits and, uh, you know, other worlds. And you have Narnia with Lewis. Why? Because there's a sense of the fantastical that's needed in order to come to grips with what's real and true in terms of the gospel. I think it's, if you're, if you're like me, and I imagine some of you are, um, your tendency is to be kind of materialist. Uh, we tend to reduce the world to material causes and effects that can be explained. I mean, we just tend to do that. Um, we had, a, I'll give you a little insight. Oh, I got stop. Inside into the gentle at home this week. Um, it's, it's been, it was a weird week. Weird, have you ever had that in your house? Weird. Well, just, just, that didn't go well. That didn't go well. Uh, got a son who's home sick today. Like he had to come home from a retreat. That that didn't go well either. What, what what's and, and and my wife's like, could this be the devil? <laughs> and my response to that is, of course it's not the devil. But then I'm like, well, maybe it is the devil. I mean, I, I don't know. Who am I to say, right? Um, I mean, I'm, I want to talk about cause and effect and that, this and the other. Well, what you have here in Isaiah 11 is this understanding of the whole world being rightly ordered in such a way that demands something fantastical in its description to let you have some kind of insight, even if it's through a shimmera, right? Even if it's kind of opaque into what it will really be when we press through the wardrobe into another world. That, that's the idea here. And that's the Advent hope. So, and this is what I love about this, whatever your imagination can do and achieve, and I imagine that's very different among, among the, the various people who are here. Some of us, especially if you have little kids, your capacity for your imagination may be ignited right now. But then maybe again it's not. Wherever, whatever your imagination can achieve, it will, it's not enough. I mean, that's the point. It's, it's more and it's better. And it's what we hope for, especially given the fact that we know that we're not in that world right now. Um, and, I, and, and the point of that is not just to kind of longingly look forward, that's important, but also to live in the confidence of that hope now. Because that's where I think the liberation and the, and the freedom can come from, from the fears that so easily beset us. Um, we, we have one minute. You want to ask any questions? Anything you want to say? Yeah. So the, what's described in uh, chapter 11 and chapter 2, is that describing sort of the same time, but just different elements of what's going on? Yeah, and time and the prophets are very funny. I mean, there's a kind of flexibility with this, so that there might even be elements of Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11 that could happen now, right? I mean, think about um, the resurrection of the dead. Um, that, that, that is a, that's a phrase that we tend to link particularly to the future, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about the resurrection of the dead as if it's something that's already occurred now as well. So the, there's, there's an elasticity to this, but I would say what they're presenting in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11 and, and boy, it's in Isaiah 12 and 35, I mean, it's all through. What it's presenting is this future of when all of these things are consummated in their completeness and their finality. And is that dependent on the Messiah? Yes, most definitely. Coming, having come, and then coming again. That's, that's the dynamic. And that's what I love about the season. Like, we're, we're thinking about a cooing baby in a manger, but the tradition's thinking about the king returning in power and glory. But in Isaiah, is he talking about it coming and then coming again, or is he just talking about it? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I see that, that and that's... And that's the beauty of this, right? There's a kind, there's a kind of, well, the way I was taught this, there's a kind of prophetic telescoping, right? That can sometimes combine what we might think of as separate events within 
the view of a singular thing. So the, the way in which it was described to me one time was like looking at a mountain range. Like if you're looking at a mountain range down its back, it might look as a singular range. But if you get it from the side, you might see that peak and that peak and that peak, that there's actually some, some texture to it. So I, that's the both and, I think, the yes. Yeah. Don, did you have your hand up back there? Well, just a quick, from what you were saying, two, two thoughts about C.S. Lewis, um, this faint hint that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also talks about that problem paying the way to go other places, this concept of the reason why we long for this is we have this faint hint that we are not from here, we're not of this world, this hint of heaven where we come from. I love it. And the second thing is, is Isaiah 11, uh, but, you know, having talked to some Orthodox Jews, very thoughtful about this, they would point to, if you ask them some of the question of, well, do you think maybe ever think maybe you missed it? You know, two thousand years ago, that really wasn't Messiah, and it would point to things like the lion flying down to the land, but the total fulfillment of being why um, they're still waiting for the Messiah. And, and that image, that image to me personally, of a lion lying down to the land that we take, on, you know, it's not a person. This is an animal with millions of years of instinct. Mm. And he looks at that lamb and doesn't think much. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. That's incredible. Same with us. We won't sin anymore. We won't sin anymore. It's incredible. It's, it's right. It's hard to believe. It's right. Let me bless you all as you leave. Lord, bless these friends as they are in this season of Advent. Do your, do your kind gospel work in our hearts and our minds during this season. Um, let us enter into the, into the repentance and the joy of it, Lord, fully and completely. Um, and we give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.